Hey, it's Greg Brady in for Bill Kelly today. Thanks for uh, downloading the Monday podcast on 900 CHML on the Bill Kelly Show. We start off with conversations about schools. It's not your usual school year, and it sure isn't your usual first school day of 2021. High school kids at home, elementary school kids will be at home for a week maybe longer. We start there. Dr. Nathan Stahl, geriatrician, will join us as well on the podcast. Why have we not moved faster on vaccinations? And why did we not get the Pfizer vaccine into long-term care homes? Why did we wait for the Moderna one? Where are we going in the next several weeks with the pecking order of vaccines for LTC residents and LTC workers? And speaking thereof, we're back to education. Biostatistician Ryan Imgren joins us, and we talk about the lack of asymptomatic testing They're getting it done in many states across the U.S., but we haven't come close to doing it in Ontario. We'll get to that issue as well. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to start on schools today. Today would have been the day. You know, it's an exciting day, I think, for parents and kids cherish and celebrate that Friday that you get out of school. It's a great, great time when you're in elementary school and you get that last day. Uh, I, I think it's one of the best. I think it's better than your birthday. I, I do. It depends on the time of year your birthday is. But knowing that you are free from the grips of the elementary school process, and this could be in second grade, this could be in eighth grade. Eighth grade's pretty fun when you're the kings and queens of the uh, castle. You know, when we still talked about gender in elementary schools. I kid. Uh, it, it was great to have those 17 days days off at that time of year. And, you you know, you'd sit and watch bowl games with your dad. You'd see some relatives. There'd be some presents. Um, there'd be all the Christmas movies on. I'm a big Christmas person. I'm a big fan of Christmas. This war against Christmas, don't get me started. <laughs> There's no war on Christmas. You can say Merry Christmas to whoever you feel like. Give me a break. So 17 days off. But this day, this day, the Monday after those 17 days, that's celebrated pretty much only by parents. I guess in some sense, kids want to go back to school and kids want to see their friends and kids want to show off n- new stuff. Because this is a year, it's a cliche, pardon me for it, unlike any other. It's not that It's not that today. Kids are home. And if anything, elementary school kids are beginning Zoom meetings. And high school kids will do the same. So that feeling that we had when we sent kids back to school on Labor Day is not the feeling we have now, okay? There was some optimism. We'd enjoyed our summers. Like I said, we played our golf games. We went out and ran outside. We did rent cottages. We did meet people on patios. We got back to a little bit of our existence. There weren't concerts to go to. There weren't sporting events to attend. Maybe maybe if you were really lucky and you're a parent and your youth is involved in, uh, in sports, there was like, a, you know, it was it was fun to actually go and watch your kid practice soccer or watch your kid practice baseball. Um, but there weren't there weren't the moments right in the summer that we so look forward to and we will get to experience again. OK, this is a tunnel. We're in it. We're in the darkest part of it for the next eight or nine weeks. But I wanted to bring this up. The idea that. Ontario COVID cases are, what were we, about 2920 yesterday, 2900. We were well over the 3000 mark. Modeling clearly shows we'll hit, uh, we'll hit that magic 4K mark. So exciting. Um, it's so awful. It's so dreadful. And we'll hit 4000, um, in the next week or two. That's almost a certainty. 
anyone who has projected numbers and anyone who knows anything about mathematics or exponential growth, we're not going to see the cases go down anytime soon. And I will say right out of the gate before I get into the meat and potatoes of what I want to say about schools. And, and I'll, uh, I'll certainly seek your thoughts out later on in this program this morning, but there's no question in my mind that, uh, We made decisions over the holidays that were meant to be responsible. I do think the vast majority of people understand the importance of this, that this just isn't about you or your family or your circumstances. And school is part of that gigantic picture here. I think about confidence and I think about how confident I was in the government, in the Ontario government, when the education minister, Stephen Lecce, mentioned and and laid out the details of the plan for high schools. My kid was starting high school uh, last fall, so he's a, he's a ninth grader uh, right now. Really happy um, and really proud of him. I don't tell you know I, I'm one of those people that think you know you should tell people more stuff how you feel. Like I'm one of those I love you everyday persons, and some people are are a little more constricted with their emotions. I often think the generation before us, the people born in their forties, they don't do that as often as we do. We we've, we've been grown up to be more emotional. Do I think we share too much? Do I think we should? keep more stuff to ourselves, that not everything is a crisis, not everything is a tragedy, not everything needs to be uh, something that we just can't plain get over. Yeah, I think that also. But we're sharers, at least in terms of people born, say, in the mid-70s, and I'm a child of the 80s, so I understand how that works. And I thought about what makes a person confident, and I came up with three things. And I might be wrong about some of these. By the way, you can always email me, um, Brady at 640toronto.com. Uh, Toronto's lending me out to Hamilton and London for the weekend. I'm, uh, again, thrilled to do it. Thrilled to do it. Um, the folks at CHML have been fantastic to me over over the summer. Uh, what makes a person confident? And I thought about three things. Experience. Well, that makes you confident, right? Data makes you confident. Numbers. Now, when numbers back something up, that's that's a pretty good thing, right? And observation. Okay? A little bit of an eye test. There's there's some instincts you have. You know you're in the right scenario here. There's those studies that say when you meet somebody for the first time, you, you know whether or not you would ask them out on a date. Okay, there's the, there's a reason we do speed dating. Well, I don't do it. I've been married for 16 years, but uh, but speed dating is something that people because you you know instantaneously, right? You're getting a good vibe or not a good vibe. I never buy those stories. I never buy them. Where it's where where people were, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not very attracted, and I'm certainly not attracted. And then they they see, it, and then by the thirtieth time you meet somebody, they're like, boom, yeah, snap of a finger, yeah, I, I I could be there. I could I could have, be in a relationship with that person. But everybody's different, okay? Everybody has that different wiring. But I thought about experience, data, and observation. Let me bring it a step further, okay? You see other people uh, w- when you're when you're getting older in that school experience, and you're like, how do people like ask somebody out? How do you ask somebody out on a date? Even your first elementary school dances are like that. You're like, what do you do? <laughs> how do you, well, how do you know when the right time is? And and is if the song starts and you hesitate, it's the song's thirty seconds in. It's a four minute slow song. It's one of those one of those babies off the Chicago Seventeen album, right? You're the inspiration. Is that too serious a song to ask somebody for a slow dance? Might maybe so. It's not Stairway to Heaven, okay? So experience, data, and observation, but but you get experience, okay? I'd liken to, um, I don't know, sex. Let's talk about sex. Let's go salt and pepper, right? Let's talk about it. Losing your, you're pretty confident losing your, when you lose your, no, you're not. You aren't. (laughs) And maybe not the time after that or the time after that. But soon, figure out do's and don'ts. 
And parenting is like that. And adulthood is like that. And schools have been like that this year. So you'll have to forgive my questioning of where we're going to go in the next week or so with opening the door up to elementary school students a week from now. When we went back to school the day after Labor Day, the Ontario COVID cases, as I mentioned, 190 people, 190. We're way, way past that right now. We're 15 times that. Okay, for every one person that tests positive for COVID-19 in the day before Labor Day, 15 of them, 15 of them. You're not supposed to be in a room with 15 people right now. You're not supposed to have 15 people in your backyard. So that's a lot of people. And schools, colleges, and universities all closed up in March. Why'd they they close? To reduce the spread of COVID-19, plain and simple. Okay? And the reproduction number, the R number, got below one. And we patted ourselves on the back. And we knew schools were a big part of that. Keeping kids home from school did just that. Not reopening them. In April, May, June. Was it difficult? Oh, yes. Do do you still have nightmares about getting your seven-year-old to sit down and do assignments at the dining room table? Absolutely. You should. There's like, there's, there's a scar. There's some scar tissue from that. And it's only several months ago. And uh, but we tried to, you know, suppress the disease. We knew we couldn't eliminate it. We were still learning about it. We we're all worried about a bunch of stuff that we don't worry about anymore. OK, you, are you are you using disposable gloves to, to pump gas? No, you ain't. Are you washing your groceries? Also, no, you ain't. But what are the purposes of schools? Children need the company of their peers. We get told that I, I believe that. But if your kids and, and your purpose is social interaction, uh, there's better ways to do that than how schools are right now because you can't really socially interact. I, I buy the notion that you can go to school and, and have a, have conversations and kids are out on the playground. And I'm talking about elementary specifically right now because the high school plan I was a big fan of, very confident in, experience data observation, makes a person confident. Experience data observation. I was a lot less confident about the elementary school plan. And we were pretty sure that kids wouldn't get sick. On mass, but what we weren't sure is whether they could spread it asymptomatically. So schools provide opportunities for all of us. Okay, it's a refuge for kids who don't get looked after well at home. We know that that's true. Okay, we know that not every learning environment can be equal. I don't know how to rectify that um, pre-COVID nineteen, during COVID nineteen, and I'm not sure that we can fully rectify it after COVID nineteen. We can wish and we can try. And we can attempt to level the playing field, but I'm not sure. You can attempt to create equality, whether you can succeed in creating equality on all levels, on all surfaces, is a really, really difficult thing to do, okay, in any circumstance. And schools teach. That's the third thing they do. By definition, the basic model of schools teach, okay? Kids crowd into a room. The teacher engages them. And we're not able to do that the same way right now. And the children come out and they're smarter, okay? You, you'd be hard-pressed sometimes, maybe, to document what you learned on a given day if you look back at elementary school or you look back at high school, but you got smarter because you applied yourself and you got into it. Now, here's some of the problem. Schools have been a win for me. They've been a big win in this province. Okay, I'm going to say that. I'm going to defend what the Ontario government did, especially with the high school system. Because of the where the cases were in August and September, 
They should have been the last thing to close, the first thing to stay open, and we did that. But I'm going to lay out after the break exactly where the messaging has gone wrong for this province and exactly why it's the last thing we can open right now and exactly why it's much more dangerous than it was in September. It's not equally dangerous. It's more because the virus isn't out there as much. It's out there more. And you can be angry at the virus, but it doesn't care. And you can be bored with the monotony of locking yourself down and of your kids' online learning and and the, uh, again, scar tissue that may result from that for them, but it's not going to be permanent. And the, and the fraying of your relationship, okay, and the battling with your kid to do what he's supposed to do and what she's supposed to do is not going to be permanent. COVID-19 could be permanent. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to bring people up to date uh, before we get to Dr. Stahl really quickly. because I want to spend a lot of time with him on the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. It rolled out for for the United Kingdom today. And the first people got the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine today. Now, cheaper than uh, than the other ones. It's eat per dose. It's easier than the other ones to handle, and it obviously doesn't require it, it part and parcel. It doesn't require the incredibly cold storage that the Pfizer vaccine uh, needs. A uh, hundred million shots is what the UK has. You'd say, where are we with Health Canada? Well, we're not there yet. They they still want to look at data. And I'm not, I'm not saying that's right or wrong right now. There's so many balls being juggled in the air right now. We've got Pfizer vaccines sitting on the shelf. We those were approved in Canada back on December 9th. So. Snap of a finger, right? Time's flown. 25 days. And obviously the Moderna vaccine was just approved a couple days before Christmas. And those are the ones we're trying to get out uh, to long-term care homes. Um, but it has not been an easy process. And it's not been a thorough uh, process uh, getting that done one way or the other. Uh, I want to bring on a geriatrics doctor uh, at Sinai Health. Uh, and he's done so much uh, incredibly important messaging. Um, when it comes to LTCs, when it comes to what we need to be doing in this second wave, Dr. Nathan Stahl joins me on 900 CHML. Dr. Stahl, it's great for you to come on. I appreciate the time as always. Great. Thanks for having me. Give me your sense uh, as to whether the weekend, I know there were some some new numbers and I saw that you retweeted them. There's some new optimistic numbers uh, about um, vaccines that have gone into people's arms. Uh, Samir Sinha tweeted it. Dr. Sinha says uh, we're almost at 42,000 vaccine doses, but we that's, that's about double where we were at the middle of last week. Lay out for our audience, it's still been an incredibly frustrating process not to be moving quicker, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm not sure how optimistic that is. We still have, you know, uh, we still have over 70% of vaccines that are still stuck in freezers. Um, so, yes, we've we've gotten in about 40,000 doses thus far, but look at our population of 15 million, right? We are, this is, that's a rounding error on, in terms of our population and what we're going to need to make a difference. And the, the other concerning thing is, you know, you would have hoped that that 40,000 would get into the arms of the people who need it most, which are the long-term care and retirement home residents. And only a handful of homes have actually gotten vaccinated thus far. So um, really, the vaccines have not made a difference uh, thus far because of how slow and how little we have vaccinated our population. Do do Canadians have a true understanding um, and, and have we not, Ontarians, I should say, have we not done sort of a pecking order properly? That's the one thing I bring up the UK earlier, and it feels like they know. Every doctor I speak to, every person on the ground uh, seems to know that it's all about the care home residents and the care home workers first, and then it's people over 80, and then it's frontline healthcare workers. Are, are, are we, do we have a set list 
or are we just doing this seemingly at random in some cases? No, we have a set list that actually makes good sense. And this is not just something that Ontario has developed. The, uh, there's Canadian guidance on this from NACI or the National Advisory Council on Immunization. And I, and I think we got this right in terms of prioritizing long-term care workers, long-term care home residents, uh, people who are receiving home care in the community and, and Indigenous communities. Those were the people who were uh, slated to receive the vaccine first. The problem is, has been the execution. You know, everyone was really worried that we didn't have enough supply and that Canada hadn't secured as much supply as other countries. Supply has actually not been our issue. Administration has been our issue. And so the, as you highlighted up front, the, the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine was, um, the plan was to use it in Ontario on long-term care home workers. Um, and not to move the product into long-term care homes, which I, I think was probably not the right thing to do. Um, many other jurisdictions did choose to move it into into homes um, and have vaccinated a lot of their population. So you look at Quebec, British Columbia, the state of California, the state of Ohio, the United Kingdom, there are tons of places, and Israel, of course, which has been leading the world in terms of vaccination. Yeah. They've all moved the Pfizer vaccine into homes. The plan was to use the Pfizer vaccine and keep it at the distribution centers and vaccinate the workers. The, the one other thing that was sort of forgotten in this is that the long-term care home workforce is, is a population that has a lot of skepticism towards this vaccine. And we've seen from other jurisdictions like the United States and even the state of Ohio that somewhere from 60 to 75 percent of workers are refusing the vaccine. So... You know, we've had this double whammy of not moving the product into homes and then trying to vaccinate uh, a workforce that is uh, hesitant about receiving this. So have you heard of personal have you heard of healthcare workers refusing the vaccine in in the GTA in Ontario? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm you know, in, in the hospital, you know, you sort of overhear the chatter uh, at nursing stations and, you know, just in the hallways. And there's a lot of uh, skepticism about the vaccine. And in fact, you know, there's many healthcare workers that have told me that they have um, either refused uh, when when they've been called for the vaccine, or that they're very hesitant and may not accept when they get the call for the vaccine. They they want to sort of quote unquote wait and see and wait for other people to receive it. Does that make you um, how like what's the what's the word I'm disconsolate? <laughs> how do you describe your reaction when you hear the when you hear the anecdotes? You know, it's sort of like when people ask me, how do you how, how do you perceive or what's your reaction to what's going on in long term care? Uh, I'm distressed by it, but it's actually somewhat predictable. I mean, this is a, a workforce, you know, that that is, um, you know, that is 40 percent are, are visible minorities um, there. You know, the, the messaging we need to use is different than than might be used on, you know, uh, on on physicians or on on more upper class individuals there needs to be tailored messaging to gain the trust of this population and simply educating them about the vaccine using you know the the traditional means we might do so is not going to cut it and and i think that has actually been one of the other failings of our vaccine rollout is that we have not done as much i would argue to promote vaccine acceptance uh, amongst this population. So it's actually somewhat predictable. It's just we had assumed that if we just put vaccines into freezers and, and called people up, that they would accept them. I mean, another example of this is that long-term care home workers frequently work multiple jobs. Um, and there is currently yeah. no paid time for these individuals to go get the vaccine. So we're asking them to actually go, uh, in some instances, on their off days 
to to travel downtown, uh, which may be unfamiliar to them. We're not giving them paid transportation and parking. And, and also, um, you know, people do have a sore arm after this. Some people do experience a reaction that that makes them take time off work. We haven't guaranteed that they're going to have paid sick leave for that time. So there are real sort of missteps in terms of lack of efforts to promote acceptance, but also to guarantee the financial well-being of these individuals when they do receive the vaccine. I know I want to spend a few minutes on LTCs for sure, um, and, and we should, but I, I do want to follow up on this. By the way, Dr. Nathan Stahl joining us, 900 CHML. Um, I, I want to ask you about sort of that that sort of messaging and, and the advocacy. The reason I, I enjoy having, you know, doctors like yourself on, Dr. Bogosh, Dr. Warner, is I think uh, I, I think you're clear. I think you're concise and your messaging is on point and, and people have no reason not to trust you. I worry that our politicians and it's, it's in some way it's no fault of their own and in some way it, it is but i don't know that we could get a campaign going with a christine elliott or a, a a a doug ford or a justin trudeau on television saying hey everybody get the vaccine because i think you know there's this level of trust that i worry has i don't think it's irreparable but i do think there's a chasm now in in trust between politicians and it again it's the sort of do as i say not as i do thing the vacation of rod phillips is a great example where people are like I- I- i'm done i don't feel like you have my best interests anymore which is terrible that that would be the case for the vaccine because that's exactly in your best interest is to get it yeah, well one of the you know one of the things that i think has not helped with the trust is that um our case counts and deaths have escalated over the holiday period. And this is the time when we receive the vaccines. And where have our politicians been other than on vacation, right? We haven't seen actually any government officials really come out. Um, you know, if you look at our top officials in Ontario or even, even Trudeau, we haven't heard much from these individuals in, in a couple of weeks now. So Rome is literally burning and our leaders have not been present and they're sort of waiting for I guess today, which is the official return to work for many individuals. So um, I, I don't think that has helped with trust either. I do think, um, you know, I think this is the best way, honestly, it's very simple to regain trust is to accelerate this process. But also, I think what has been really challenging over the last couple of weeks, because our, our leaders have been sort of on vacation, is there's been a lack of transparency about why is it so slow and what are we doing to accelerate it? And no one seems to be able to give a clear answer about that, which is the other thing that I don't think is contributing to, to a lot of trust amongst the population. No, it's a huge problem. Do you um, so f- the, the Moderna vaccine was earmarked for uh, residents and staff at long term care. Has your uh, push been that we shouldn't have just waited for the Moderna vaccine? I mentioned it gets approved on December 23rd. The The Pfizer vaccine should have been more utilized in long-term care homes through the middle of December. And some of the terrible scenarios, horrific scenarios we're facing. There's one in Niagara Falls that has obviously uh, sprouted up over the weekend, not from nothing. Uh, and obviously the Scarborough Tender Care one. Should we have been getting the Pfizer vaccine into LTCs and not and not dawdling, if you will, until we got the Moderna out? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we've had we've had 90,000 doses of Pfizer in a freezer in Ontario since December 21st. Uh, we used, you know, nearly now it's it's over 20,000, but we've used a, still a fraction of it. Uh, and none of that has gone to long term care. You know, our first resident or the first individual vaccinated in our country is actually a long term care resident in Quebec. And they received the Pfizer vaccine. So this has been done since day one. And it's also being done in British Columbia. Um, so, you know, I, I 
I don't think, unfortunately, that it would have helped with the, the outbreaks, the deadly outbreaks at tender care um, and the one in Niagara Falls, because it does take two weeks um, to, to gain immunity. And these, these unfortunate residents were probably already incubating the virus and it, it wouldn't have saved those lives. But if you, you know, if we had started rolling out the December 21st, you know, we're now, you know, we're now we're two weeks later sitting here talking on January 4th, the residents who received it then would, would start to have good immunity now. So if you look forward from the outbreaks that are going to happen today onward, these are the lives that were potentially, um, you know, prevent the, or the deaths, I should say, that were potentially preventable um, had we started vaccinating with Pfizer on December 21st. And then the Moderna vaccine, I mean, we started with a slow pilot project um, late last week, right? We need to be treating this like yeah. the emergency that it is and stop piloting and just blitz the homes, get the product out there and get needles into arms. Do you think the average Canadian uh, now thinks they'll get vaccinated later than maybe three weeks ago, that they're, they're sort of, you know, internal body clock forecast? I know I, I had in my mind, I'm like, I don't know, maybe by, maybe by June 1st, a normal person like me in my mid-40s with no comorbidities, maybe I'd get it by June 1st. Do you worry that the, as we, everything we've talked about, the lack of getting it into LTCs, the rising numbers, the, 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 you know, the, the lack of urgency pushes everybody's clock back as to when they feel like they'd be, they'd be safer? I think so. I mean, just, you know, just before the before 2020 ended, General Hellier came out and said he, he hopes to vaccinate, I believe, 8.5 million people, so half our population by July. You know, mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of people to vaccinate before that's achievable. I do think, though, once there is warmer weather um, and and once they do scale up sort of outdoor you know outdoor tents and the drive-throughs and some of the things we're seeing in places that are doing this really well, like like Israel and and we do have actually a, a greater supply. I do think the, the pace of vaccination will pick up. But, I, I, you know, I, I do think for many people who are lower on the priority list, meaning they're in better health and at lower risk of, of poor outcomes, you know, younger individuals who do not have chronic conditions and who do not have, you know, front-facing jobs, those people are probably looking at sometime late into 2020 and, or 2021, excuse me, or or maybe even 2022 yeah. um, at the current pace, unless things really, really accelerate. I, I'm tight for time here, but I want to know, do you think we should vaccinate uh, teachers um, swiftly? Well, we should do LTCs first and, and cover the entire province of Ontario in every corner. Uh, but should we be doing teachers as well in the next month or so, given the, the possibility of asymptomatic spread among kids? Look, um, you know, the vaccine... The data we currently have shows that the vaccine prevents severe infection. We don't actually have data that it prevents transmission. We think it probably does, but we need to follow Mm -hmm. the data um, when we have a limited supply. And really, we need to be vaccinating up front the populations that are most likely to die. Um, And and those are the long-term care residents and those are the retirement home residents. Um, and, And that's why those populations should receive, and I don't think there's any disagreement about that, the first vaccine. You know, teachers and other people, grocery store workers and other people who have front-facing jobs, they will be in the next tier of prioritization. Um, it's just we need to get the vaccines into the people who are most likely to die first. And that's where the evidence uh, behind the vaccine is actually exists right now as well. Dr. Stahl, it's brilliant stuff as always. Thank you very much. Don't stop what you're doing. Keep uh, keep speaking up uh, and doing everything you're doing. It's it, it makes a massive, massive difference to an awful lot of people. And thanks for spending time with me today. 
Thanks for having me. You got it. Dr. Nathan Stahl uh, from Sinai Health. Uh, that's just it. You know, there's so much there to, to unpack, but we talked about it earlier about, you know, knowing the phases. If you are in the UK right now, the, what they've done nationally, and we we should have done this. I think we still could do this, but it takes the cooperation of the provinces. And we feel pretty splintered as provinces right now, right? What works for one province doesn't seem to necessarily work for another. But they have isolated, identified rather, nine groups of individuals and people from 50 to 54 are in the ninth group so you would know what group you're in care homes resident care home residents care home workers number one okay number two is people aged 80 and frontline health and social care workers people aged 75 to 79 and then and then it goes down right people aged 16 to 64 with underlying health conditions if you're a 23 year old with severe asthma you should go ahead of a perfectly healthy 52-year-old. Yeah, you should. And that's what they've identified. We don't know that stuff in our country. We sure don't know it in our province. Okay? We don't. There are there are, I've heard from healthcare professionals who said, I've got the shot, and I'm thankful for it, and I didn't want to turn it down because I thought I'd lose my place in line, but I'm not sure I should have got it before a long-term care worker. No, you probably should not have. He or she probably should not have. But you, what are you going to do? Say no? If someone came to you with the vaccine and knocked on your door today, say, hey, uh, party of five, uh, Johnson, five vaccines. <laughs> you're all coming. You're all running to the door with your masks on and distancing. But you're doing it. OK, so look, we've got grim, grim stuff ahead of us uh, right now. OK, whatever you thought it would be in January and February in September, I, I, you can't be that much of a Debbie Downer that you thought it'd be this bad. So it's worse than you thought it would be. So we've got worse days ahead, but we've got to isolate the groups we want to vaccinate. Okay. We've got to identify them and, and you should know Well, I'm in group five. Oh, really? That's interesting. I'm in group seven and we don't, we don't know that right now. You're listening to the Bill Kelly show podcast on 900 CHML. Will your elementary school student return to school a week from today? I'm guessing not, but no messaging from uh, the Ontario government right now as to whether that'll be the case or not. Now, I, I got a hold of, and it's pretty easy to find. There's a study in the UK that transpired before. Now, this is before the new variant. This was um, before the new strain started dominating the UK in the middle of December. So this report concluded on December 17th, and they put it out on New Year's Eve. Now, I want to read you some of it. And this is not ironclad, like I guarantee you, okay, that this is happening in Canada, in Ontario, in Hamilton, in London, in Toronto, in the very school that your kid goes to or the school that you happen to teach in. And again, teachers, thank you for your service. I know it wasn't an easy four months. It's not going to be an easy next five or six. It just isn't. But the analysis showed children and young people are more likely to bring the virus into the household than those aged 17 or over. They are less likely to catch the virus within the household. Now, this is consistent with previous analysis in the same study group of UK transmission. Here's what we've heard from Ontario's education minister. Okay? Uh, schools are not a source of rising community transmission, according to medical experts. Who is that medical expert that, you know, the education minister, Stephen Lecce, who have a lot of respect for, will often quote, that person is Dr. David Williams, the chief medical officer of health for Ontario. By design, it was important to send kids back to school. 
Absolutely. Yes. And, and, and to me, it was a successful four months. Now, though, with rising cases, we've got a different scenario on our hands and a different narrative. And I'll lay that out in a second. I'll talk about that with Ryan Imgren in a second, in a couple minutes. Young people, 2 to 16, age 2 to 16, much more likely than those 17 and over to be the first case in their household. In particular, those aged 12 to 16. So that's about grade 7 age to grade 10. They're not holding kids back anymore. They held a couple back when I was in fourth or fifth grade. We don't do that anymore, right? Feelings and whatnot. Okay. Age 12 to 16 are nearly seven times as likely, seven times, to be the first case in your household compared to those 17 or over. And transmissibility shows how likely someone is to pass the virus on within the household if they're the first positive case. The analysis shows 2- to 16-year-olds are more than twice as likely to pass on the virus within their household compared to people aged 17 or over. What do we conclude from this? That there's a lot of asymptomatic spread among kids. You can make the case, you certainly can, that kids aren't getting sick. And what a relief. Because when we sent kids back to school, I felt it all the way through my chest. All the way through it on Labor Day and the day that that my kids went back to school the day after Labor Day in elementary school and and high school. I have a grade nine and a grade seven. And I was more confident in the high school plan than the elementary school plan. I mentioned that earlier in the program. I've told that to anybody who will listen. And I'm thankful for these four months. And I will tell you again, sending kids back, even in the with the methodology and the um, and the structure that they did more win than a loss. Now, I'm well aware, very aware in my scenario that I've got a lot of boxes that check more positive, if you will, than negative for me. No one no one in the house has respiratory problems. No one's immunocompromised. No one smokes. No one's obese. No one's unhealthy. We don't live with an older parent, a grandparent to our kids. We don't have to see older people on a regular basis. Now, my wife has been going and visiting her father in a long-term care home. We had to painstakingly, obviously, and with heavy emotion, put my father-in-law in a long-term care home. He suffers from early-onset dementia. And we had to put him in a home five or six weeks ago. Has our scenario changed? I don't know that it has, but I know that schools have. I know that. And you probably feel that too, okay? There's increased transmission occurring with everybody. And it occurs among school children when schools are open particularly in kids of a secondary school age. And again, that's the area where I had the highest confidence, the highest confidence by a mile uh, in September. So look, there's a million different ways to uh, to look at this, but there's no doubt we've got just a such a changed set of circumstances, an absolute you know, game changer with the numbers we're talking about. We had 190 cases in Ontario the day before we sent school, kids back to school in September. Here's the other thing, and I want to mention this really quick before I get to Ryan Imgren. There is no sign that we're going to asymptomatically, that we're going to test asymptomatic teachers or students. We're not going to utilize rapid tests. Let me tell you what the state of New York does. New York was on fire in March and April with coronavirus, okay? It made Governor Cuomo a household name among people that didn't live in New York State, Okay. Here's what they would do when schools had to close for the first time. And if they did close, even for a day, even for a half day, here's what they would do when they reopened. And they did this. They, they tried to do this even in areas where they could afford to with the rapid tests. 
25% of the in-person learning school community, and these are mandatory, students and faculty must be tested per week. The school should ensure it provides opportunities to test on school grounds. To my knowledge, there's never been one coronavirus test in our entire province of 15 million people and millions of kids at school and hundreds of thousands of teachers. There's not been one test given on school grounds. Do we have the capabilities to do that? Yes, we do. We do now. We didn't in September and October. We certainly do now. But you have to test 25% of the school population of unique individuals who have not previously been tested for the surveillance screening. We don't do that. There's no plan to do that. And I'd be a lot more on board with sending kids back if we were doing that because we have no concept of the number of asymptomatic cases in the population in schools. It'd be great if the education minister, Stephen Lecce, was more right than wrong. It would be awesome. But you don't have to take that chance as a parent. You do not. Okay? It's more likely he's more wrong than right. And even if you're sending your kid back, and I'm planning to, I'm planning on sending my elementary school school kid back when that time is right. My guess is it isn't until February. That's not a terribly bold prediction. I don't think any school is open in our province until Ontario. But it'd be great It'd be such a compromise for the conservatives to say, guess what? Everything has a risk right now. Okay, Going to the grocery store has a risk. Okay, Coming in and doing a radio show has a risk. And we'll do everything we can to keep your kids safe. We're confident. Okay, We've got your back. We want outfit teachers and students with everything they need. Because there's going to be COVID. There's COVID everywhere. Not, not none of this. Hey, it's impo- It's magic, and COVID can't be acquired in schools. If kids get it, they're getting it in the community. They told you that about healthcare workers, and it wasn't true. They told you that about restaurant and bar employees, and it also wasn't true. Just be honest. Just be accountable. If we're working together, then we're working together. But you can't tell us something that has no data, no data to back it up. It'd be great if you were right, but a lot of parents don't want to take the risk. That you're wrong. Ryan Imgren is a biostatistician educator as well. He's done a lot of media, and here he is for us again on uh, 900 CHML. It's great to have you. What, what What's your prediction on elementary schools? Do you look and say, we won't have a kid in school in this province until February? Well, I think we heard yesterday Minister Lecce doubled down and said, no matter what, we have elementary students returning next week, which is wrong for so many reasons. Was it right in the fall? I, I mentioned it earlier, Ryan. The, the Labor Day cases were 190 in our province. Um, you know, in a place like Hamilton, there were 17 cases. Toronto had 32 cases. Um, we got we've gone from 190 to 3,000. Uh, so it, it's been about 15. We got 15 cases every day for every one we had in September. That alone should change the game and the equation, shouldn't it? 100 percent. And that's around the same numbers we had in May when we had the minister announce that hybrid was an option as well. And what hybrid means is that we send half the students back. And yet that's not even being explored as an option. It just seems to be that it's either fully online or it's fully back in person. I don't know why this whole hybrid um, like argument went out the window, because when we had 300 cases here in Ontario, hybrid was the option which we were talking about. Tell our audience how frightening uh, the 9.7% positivity across the province we see in tests is. We were at 0.3, 0.4 
uh, for many weeks and uh, and almost a couple months in the spring and summer when appropriately so the conservative government got praised for being patient and moving us through stages stage one stage two stage three they were applauded for that and rightly so we're at 9.7 right now when we weren't even at one in the summer 9.7 is horrifying really what you want is you want a positivity rate of around three percent if it's much less than three percent you're doing a lot of asymptomatic testing which is okay if your numbers are really really low but when you see like percent positivity of around 10%, that means that one of every 10 people you're actually testing are like coming up positive for the COVID-19. Now, if you're doing proper contact tracing, you're going to find that most people have more than just 10 contacts, which means that we are not doing proper contact tracing. And that's what that is really, really indicative of. And when you don't do proper contact tracing, you don't find cases. I laid that out there about and and listen, we got a lot to be proud about with where we live uh, and our health care and and what we do for each other when it comes to medicine, when it comes to uh, those scenarios. But I've laid this out before. You've probably heard me say it. New York State has about the same population as Toronto as as Ontario, and they've been kicking our butts when it comes to the number of tests they do. And when I mention uh, that in schools, e- even in the deepest borough and in, in most populated borough in New York City, they're doing asymptomatic testing of 25 percent of kids on a weekly basis. We're doing none of that. Um, what does that what, what does that do for you? What does that make you think how far behind we are? New York State of all places. Yeah, we're exceptionally far behind. In fact, we've been behind since uh, since October when New York State was doing 200,000 tests per day. Um, we have no I mean, the. Most we've done is around 60,000 tests. They've been doing 200,000 a day since October. Um, and asymptomatic school testing, just school testing in general, that's a huge miss here in Ontario. It's something which we should have been doing all along. We started it with a school in Windsor way back when, found many cases. And then it almost seemed like because we did asymptomatic testing and we found cases that because that went against what the government was saying, they said, you know what, let's still roll out some testing programs but we're going to be very secretive with with the results we're not going to put the information out there and that's that certainly has to change do you think more parents would have more or less confidence if if the government laid it out as i did and said we're telling the the government and municipal governments even ryan are telling people be as safe as you can only go out for this only go out for that how can they then tell us if, you know, a retail environment isn't safe, a gym isn't safe, um, you know, walking, uh, you know, walking in a, a an empty shopping mall isn't safe. How can they tell us schools are safe? Yeah, absolutely. And we'd be sending elementary kids back to school next week. And, and just look, look, picture this. We're sending elementary students back. There'll be some elementary classes which are going to have 25 to 30 students in a class. For six hours at a time, most of them will be unmasked in JKs to grade three, but even those in Mm -hmm. grade four and up will have to take off their mask for a prolonged period of time when they eat lunch together. And we're allowing like 25 to 30 kids to gather in a room unmasked for six hours at a time, and yet we're telling the rest of Ontario, you need to lock down. But... I'm not surprised because this goes with the whole mixed messaging theme, uh, the, you know, the theme of, of, of incorrect messaging that we have seen since really like August. It's been 
one thing and then it's all of a sudden something else that directly contradicts what was previously said. Ryan Ingram is our guest, uh, biostatistician, uh, who's done such phenomenal work uh, on his Twitter page. You can follow him at Imgrund, I-M-G-R-U-N-D. Um, yeah, at, at 9.7%, uh, we'll get to 10 we'll get to 11%. There's no turning this around right now. What are the options? If, uh, if Doug Ford called you today, and I'm not sure he will, but if Doug Ford called you today, what are the two or three recommendations you'd make to say, Please do. You'd beg and plead and say, please do these two or three things, uh, two or three things to keep the rest of us safe over the next few weeks. Yeah. So I think the first thing is schools, all schools need to remain online until we are under 1000 cases per day. And that needs to be explicitly stated. Here's the target. If you get to under 1000 per day, then we can send kids back to school, maybe the elementary level first, and then we can go to secondary from there. That's the first thing. Second thing is any retail stores that are open right now should only be 20% capacity. For us to allow some of these stores to be opened at 50% capacity is just absolutely insane. And And it's going to ensure that we don't bring our numbers down the way that we're supposed to. But ultimately, I think the biggest thing we can do right now is to get the vaccines that we have sitting in freezers into people's arms because that is going to reduce mortality it's going to eventually free up hospitalization space and it will allow us to become a little, a little more tolerant of slightly higher case numbers because it's not affecting the most vulnerable population who is going to die with COVID, who will also be hospitalized with COVID. Well, I'd make the case, too. If you're a parent listening, going, ah, this is all bad news. The only way the only way that your kid and if you're worried about, you know, schools acting as a babysitter, I, I think you and I would em- emphasize and, and understand that, yes, um, you know, of course, it's better for kids to be in school as they should have been in September, October, November. But if you want your kids back in school in, in even May or June, acting now is pretty damn important. Like, like it's, it's too late. It's too late for February, March, and probably most of April, unless vaccinations roll out in a big hurry, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the other thing too, which we, which we also need to keep in mind is that it was just last month that we had Minister Lecce rolling out like checks to families, $375 million to families, not into schools. There has been, you know, many, many times that money has been rolled out to families and not invested in schools. Schools should have and could have been made safe way back in August, but instead what we did is we gave the money to the wrong people. We, you know, saved money in our like bank accounts. We didn't spend it on schools. That was a, that's a, it's a huge, huge problem. And I think now we are like paying the price for this with the number of cases we're actually seeing. And it's going to be a long time before we can send kids back to school and have them feel safe in that environment. Ryan, uh, you're tireless. Keep doing the work you're doing. Uh, and thanks very much for spending time with me today, as always. We'll talk soon, man. Be great. Okay, Ryan Ingrid joining us, biostatistician, uh, high school teacher as well. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Greg Brady. Hope you enjoyed it. The Bill Kelly Show podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts from. Thank you again for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review. And I'll be back with another one tomorrow.